I've gotten used to saying, open your Bibles, the book of Hebrews. We're going to be saying goodbye to an old friend tonight. Till we meet again, yes. So for the last time, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. We're talking about practical Christianity. Practical Christianity as an expression of the worship of God. We are told by the writer in the last verse of chapter 12 that we worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. And then the whole 13th chapter is designed to give us understanding of how that worship is to be expressed and expressed largely in our interactions, our relationships with other people, with ourselves, and ultimately with God himself. And we've been looking for the last couple of weeks at four dynamics, if you will, four expressions of practical Christianity that have a direct bearing on our relationship to God. Who remembers the first one? Separation. Separation. From verses 10 through 14, he talks to us about uh, being separate, living separated lives. Again, the idea is that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't buy in any longer to the world's value system, to the world's principles. We've We've been purchased out of the world. We've been purchased out of the kingdom of darkness. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness. And we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's Son whom he loves, a a glorious and wonderful kingdom that operates by totally different principles and values than does the world. And so we are are placed back in this world to be light, to make a difference, to to allow our lives to speak to other people, and, and they see that we are different. And they too will be drawn to the Lord as they observe our lives. So separation is the first of these expressions of practical Christianity that have a direct bearing on our relationship with God. What was the second one? Sacrifice. And more pointedly, he talks to us about a sacrifice of praise. And a sacrifice of praise, remember, isn't that an interesting expression? Sacrifice of praise. You would not normally think to put those two words together, would you? But we said that the word sacrifice comes from the Greek word, the root word, which means to kill or to slaughter for a purpose. And so if I'm to offer a sacrifice of praise, then I must kill or slaughter something for the purpose of praising God. What must I kill or slaughter? Yeah, our pride, our ego, our fear, anything that would diminish or get in the way of our worship of God, our praise of God. Whatever would diminish and keep me from praising God, what should I do to it? Kill it. Slaughter it. Be brutal with it, right? Sacrifice of praise. Then he goes on, he talks about not only praising him with our lips, but also with our lives, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, you remember, uh, God looked at Israel and he, his, his lament was, they, they, they just praised me with their lips. But he didn't see the praise reflected through their lives. And so, again, we are to praise him with our lips and with our lives. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. That kind of fits in with, with uh, what's going on in the life of our congregation in these next several months. Sacrifice for the sake of other people, serving other people, ministering to other people. We do it sacrificially. What was the third of these dynamics? The S word. <laughs> the S word. Submission. Yeah. He talks to us in verse 17 about obeying our leaders and submitting to their authority. Who's the authority from? It's God's delegated authority from God. And that God's leaders are responsible to him for that authority and how they um, effectuate it in the life of the church. So we are to be people who are in submission. Our fourth obligation to God now, as we we look at it tonight, is, and I use the same letter S, is supplication. That's a fancy way to say pray. It's supplication. So we've been looking at separation, Sacrifice, submission, and now supplication. 
And this is covered in verses 18 through 21. So if you read those verses with me, the writer says, verse 18, Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then kind of as as a postscript, he says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. (laughs) It can be read in less than an hour, but we've taken three years to read it. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I'll come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Powerful. Pray. Pray. Pray for us. Notice he doesn't say pray a prayer for us. He says pray for us. The tense and the mood in the Greek text indicate that it's, it's keep on praying for us. It's an exhortation to keep on praying for us. Now, who are the us? Who are the us he's talking about, do you think? The leadership, himself included. You see... To keep praying for the leaders in the church is to serve God, is to please God. And again, we tie this up with worship of God. It's an expression of worship. Keep on praying for the leaders of the church. And in so doing, we are worshiping God. Are you with me? This is what what he's telling us. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. God is sovereign. But, you know, prayer makes things possible that otherwise would not be possible. Jack Haber says prayer is invading the impossible. Somehow, I don't understand how it works, somehow prayer moves the hand of God. He is sovereign. He does have a plan. He does have a purpose. But somehow our prayers move his hand. Prayer, I want to suggest to you, is probably the most powerful way that we can intervene in another person's life or on behalf of another person. You can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. You can do all the other machinations to try to get them to cooperate, get their attention, so forth. But prayer is the most powerful way. I remember John Woolheather said to me one time, and uh, many of you remember John and Rosemary. We were discussing an issue and we couldn't make any progress on the issue. And somebody said, well, let's pray. And John so characteristically said, it's come to that. <laughs> it's come to that. So much of the time, prayer is an afterthought. Rather than the very first resource that we enter into. Beloved, not only are we to obey our leaders, not only are we to submit to their authority, but we are also exhorted to pray for our leaders. Pray for them. Verse 17, remember, says submit to them. And then in verse 18, he says pray for us. They go hand in hand. And this prayer for leaders, by the way, applies not only to spiritual leaders, but also to secular leaders. Listen to what uh, Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving uh, be made for everyone, 
He says, for kings, now notice, and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. So who should prayers be made for? All people in authority. So this means, this means um, our boss. So if you're an employee and you have a boss, does your boss have authority? Yeah, you should be praying for your boss. If you're in school and you have a teacher, your teacher has authority. You should be praying for your teacher. If you're a youngster and still living under the authority of your parents, what should you be doing? Praying for your parents. Church leaders and government leaders. All those in positions of authority as Christians, we need to be praying for those people. Doesn't matter if they're secular leaders or spiritual leaders. All those in authority, we need to be praying for them. Imagine uh, the difference in our society. Imagine the difference in our homes. Imagine the difference in our schools if, in fact, there were more and more prayer going on, concerted prayer on behalf of those in authority. I suspect that we wouldn't see the kind of grief that we see all around us. We've got to remember that all leaders, be they secular or spiritual, all leaders um, are just made out of the same stuff as the people they serve. All leaders have weaknesses. They have sin. They have blind spots. They have limitations. They have needs of all kinds. Just like everybody else. They're no different. They need prayer. If the truth be known, most people wouldn't want to be in a position of leadership because of what the responsibility carries. But these people need prayer. We need to see that. We need to say, you know, I need to pray for these people. We need to pray for our governmental leaders. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our congressional leaders and uh, the, the, the legislative bodies. We need to pray for the policemen in our, in our community, the firemen. We're praying for these people. We'd be praying for our spiritual leaders. And all the way down the line. And spiritual leaders especially are vulnerable to criticism. Especially vulnerable to attack. They're vulnerable to pride if they're successful. They're vulnerable to discouragement if they fail. They're vulnerable to Satan's constant efforts to destroy their work for God. So especially spiritual leaders need our prayerful support. Beloved, before you criticize a leader, you better be praying for that leader. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to point the finger. It's easy to say, well, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, thus and such. Anybody can criticize. But we we of all people must think, I'm going to zip my mouth. I'm not going to. I've got to pray. I need to get on my face before God. I need to be praying for that person. Praying on behalf of that person. This is critical. Do you know that you can pray against people? It happens all the time. All the time. God, make my wife what she ought to be. Now, does that sound like a prayer for that person? God, help them. See, it's an attitude of the heart. God knows if we're for them or against them. God, help them. Strengthen them. Give them wisdom, Lord. Protect them. Lord, they're they're carrying a weight and a burden that I would never want to carry. Remind me every day, Lord, to support them in prayer. You see, we need to be praying for people. It's easy to criticize. And if the truth be known, most of us tend to criticize first before we pray. And then even when we pray, our heart is really not for them. The net effect is that we're praying really against them. And continuous prayer, and you try this. Continuous prayer, I want to suggest to you, is an antidote to any kind of strained relationship. If you're, if you're experiencing antagonism towards somebody, especially a leader, and that relationship is strained, 
you start praying for that person continuously and you watch what God does in your heart toward that leader. And even if it's the, the, if the leader's out of order because you've been faithful to pray, pray blessings into their life, you watch what God does to that leader too. See, we leave God out of the equation far too much. And we really don't pray expectantly. We pray wishing something will happen. But we don't really realize the power there is to prayer. And especially to intervene in people's lives. So if you're in a strained relationship, whether it be with a leader or brother and sister in Christ or, or, or a member of your family or a neighbor or somebody, just start praying for them. Start praying for them. For them. For them, not against them. And then you just, you just watch. You just watch the changes. You just watch the changes happen right before your eyes. But you've got to know something. When you start praying, the enemy is going to rise up and oppose. But he can only, he can only oppose for so long. Okay, you remember, you remember Daniel? Daniel prayed, and his prayers were opposed, and yet God saw to it that there was a major breakthrough. So we don't lose heart. We keep praying. We keep praying. So the writer asks for their prayerful support. And he'd ask for it not on the basis of just his authority. Look what he says. He says, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. He appeals uh, to this clear conviction that the leadership of this church, the leadership of that community, had been above reproach. They'd exemplified integrity, godliness. They were faithful. They, in short, could be trusted. He's saying, he's saying, I can commend the leadership of your church to you. Pray for them. You can trust them. They have proven faithful over the years. And also they have, remember from verse 17, they have a sense of their accountability to God. They're godly people. You can pray for them with full confidence. You can invest with them in your prayers. The writer himself also has an urgent need on his mind that he be restored to them soon. He says, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. We don't know why he was gone. We don't know how long he's been gone. We don't know any of the circumstances about that. But apparently he, he, was, he, he had close affections to this congregation. You read it in his letter and the passion with which he writes to them and appeals to them and challenges them and warns them. Great sense of urgency. You don't just do that with casual relationships. So apparently he had some long-standing, very deep affection uh, towards this congregation. But also, he wants to get back there to them. See, the letter is a poor substitute for his presence. He wants to get back there to them because a number of them, remember, are in danger of apostatizing, falling away, going back to Judaism. And he wants to get back to them so that he can face-to-face urge them to press on. Sometimes when you talk to somebody over the telephone and you try to encourage them and counsel them over the telephone, it's not like being face-to-face. Because when you're face-to-face, you can get face-to-face. You can say, come on, stay in there. Don't quit. Don't run. Don't run. Come on, stay with me. It's hard to do on the phone. It's even harder in a letter. So he's saying, oh, pray. Pray that I get back to you soon. Remember chapter 10, verses 24 through 26? What did he say? What did he say in those verses? Anybody, Warren? What did he say in those verses? Chapter 10, verses 24 through 26. Let us consider how we... Yeah, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. <laughs> Talking to my shirt, so everybody can hear you. Let us consider how we may spur one another on oh, yeah, let toward us love and good deeds. Yes. Let us not give up meeting together. Oh, yes. And as some are There's in the habit of doing, yeah. but let us encourage one another and, and, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Amen. Can you see him? Can you see? He writes that, you know. 
It doesn't have the same impact as if you were there face to face. Oh, let me encourage you all the more. It's the day. We see the day coming. Let's not give up assembling together as some are in their habit of doing. Let's, how, let's, think, let's think together. How can we incite each other on to love and good deeds? You see? See his urgency? And he says, pray for me. Pray for me that I can return to you soon. You need me there. Now, some people in the congregation probably wouldn't want him there, would they? They wouldn't want him to talk to him directly. But he is, he's, he's desperate for them. So he seeks their prayerful support for himself, for the leadership of that church, that they may continue to live and to lead godly lives in an exemplary fashion. Pray for your leaders. That they may continue to live and to minister as they have. You know, the Apostle Paul constantly uh, appealed for prayer from the churches. In your notes, I've given you some examples of some prayers that he appealed for. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, in that section on spiritual warfare, He says, pray also for me. This is Paul. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. See, he needed prayer for that. How many of us understand how intimidating it is uh, to to share the gospel, to speak to people, to say... You know, it's easy to, to, to say God, but the J word is a whole other thing, isn't it? So we need, we need prayer, and we need to pray for our leaders that they will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Not intimidated, not inhibited, but God would enable them to open their mouth and speak fearlessly. That should apply to all of us, shouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. See, now, remember, Paul's, Paul's, Paul's in, 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 in prison when he writes this letter to the Ephesians. Notice he doesn't pray, pray that I get out of prison. Pray that my release from my chains. Know what's he pray for? Pray that I'm an effective and powerful witness here in Rome in prison. Pray for me. Colossians chapter 4. Wrote that letter also from prison. And much the same sentiment. Pray for an open door for the message. Pray that I have an open door for the message. He's kind of restricted in jail. Pray that I get an open door and that I can proclaim the good news about Jesus clearly. Clearly. Romans chapter 15. He asked for three things in this, this, in this request. He asked first for deliverance from his enemies who would destroy him. Secondly, he asks that his service, his ministry might be acceptable in Jerusalem. Remember, he was taking up the collection for the Jerusalem saints. He's bringing that collection to Jerusalem, that it would be acceptable, that it would be received. And thirdly, he asked that they would pray that he could join them in Rome. And if you read in the book of Acts, and I'll give you the verses, you see, because the Roman church prayed for him as he asked, all three of those prayer requests were answered. He was delivered. Acts chapter 23, verse 23. He was delivered from his enemies there in in Judea. Miraculously. In Acts chapter 21, verse 17. He was received in Jerusalem gladly. In Acts chapter 27, verse 24. He arrived in Rome. In chains. But nonetheless, he arrived in Rome. And he went through an arduous path to get there. You read about that in the book of Acts. But he asked the Roman church to pray for him. And the Roman church prays for him. And God answers those prayers marvelously. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He prays for protection from wicked and evil people. Wicked and evil people. And he knew the Thessalonians would pray. They were kind of like spiritual bodyguards. You know, the, the, the president has a secret service people all around him, right, to protect him. They take a bullet any minute for the president. 
Supposed to anyway. And, and we're, we're to be like that for our leaders. We're to be spiritual bodyguards. We're to stand in the gap, protect them from the bullets and from the darts of the enemy and from wicked people, from, from raised eyebrows, from gossip. This is what I've asked you to do earlier. When, when, when people challenge you about me, you say, have you gone and talked to Zach about this yourself? I'm here to protect him. We need to, we need to get on our knees right now and pray for our pastor. I don't, I'm not ashamed of that. I ask for that. But you see, we need, we need to be protecting our leaders. Paul gives us that. People say to me, Pastor, what can I pray for for you? Three simple things. Wisdom, courage, and strength. God, give me wisdom. I learned that a long time ago when I read about Solomon as a young man taking over the throne from his father David. And I read a marvelous passage and, and, and uh, Solomon said, God, give me a wise and discerning heart. And the writer says, this pleased God that, that Solomon asked for this thing. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for the life of his enemies. He didn't ask for a, a great kingdom. And so, but he asked for a wise and discerning heart. And then the writer says, because he asked for that, God gave him a wise heart. And he also gave me everything he didn't ask for. So I always pray for wisdom. When I read that passage early on in my Christian life, I said, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Because I know along with wisdom, everything else will come. And also courage. Lord, I need courage. I need courage because it's scary to do what I do. And give me strength to do it. So if you pray for me, you pray that God would grant me wisdom, courage, and strength, please. Now, in verses 20 and 21 of this little passage here in Hebrews, the writer prays also for the Hebrews. He prays for that little congregation himself. He says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, he says, May the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. Equip you with everything good for doing His will. What, what, what is everything good for doing His will? I'm going to suggest to you is two things. His gifts to you and His power to you. He gives good gifts to the church and He empowers the church. Every good thing for doing His will. See, you can't do His will unless you know where you fit and what your gifts are. That's part of the class that's going to be offered on Sunday night. But you also need his power. He gives that amply. He gives it abundantly. You see, everything in chapter 13, when we talk about practical Christianity, you need God's power to do it. You need God's power. Keep on loving each other as brothers. You need God's power to do that. To minister to those who are hurting, those who are in need, to, to do all the things we've talked about in the last several weeks, you need God's power to do that. Without God's power, you, you can't live out practical Christianity. You become, in effect, a legalist. You're just doing stuff. And there's no joy, there's no power, there's no real fruit, except fruit for death. Beloved, we need God to equip us we need God to work in us. We need Him to equip us. We need Him to work in us. And to attempt to live the Christian life without God, without His equipping, without His power in our life, is, quite frankly, to build on wood, hay, and straw. It's all going to burn up. It won't last. The greatest display of divine power in the history of the universe was at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest display of divine power in the history of the universe was at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're told when God brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant. That whole phrase is rich with meaning. He tells us that God is the God of peace. He's the God of peace in that he has established peace with men 
through the blood of that cross, through the blood of Jesus. We have peace with God. We have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And beloved, it's by that blood that we have an eternal covenant. We have an eternal covenant. It just lasts and goes on and on and on, unlike the blood of those animal sacrifices, which were temporary. We have an eternal covenant. So you see, the blood of Jesus is eternally powerful for sin. And the blood of Jesus was totally satisfactory to God in terms of a sacrifice and total payment. Jesus says it's finished. And as a result, God brought him back from the dead. He exhibited this awesome power in bringing Jesus back from the dead. All of sin was dealt with. God was satisfied. He's now a God of peace, not a God of wrath for those who would believe in him. And it's this God of, it's this God of power. And it's the very power of God that enable us who love him to do his will. You can't do his will on your own. It's impossible. It requires God working in you. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. This is where we get the title of our book, um, Book of the Month. He says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competency comes from God. Where does our competency come from? God. It's not of ourselves. It comes from God. And so many times we're trying to live out the Christian life in our own power, our own strength, and we get so frustrated. And this is where people get burned out. This is where people get burned out. There should be no burnout in the church. If you're functioning in the power of God, the power of God is eternal. It just keeps flowing. It keeps enabling you. It keeps strengthening you. If you're burned out, you're burned out because you're operating your own strength. Quite simply. The thing we contribute to the Christian life is very simply willing yieldedness. What do we contribute? Willing yieldedness. It's kind of like swimming. Kind of like swimming. In order to swim, you first have to learn to float. But you don't float until you willingly yield yourself to the buoyancy principle of water. Isn't that true? I mean, you've got to trust that water will hold you up. If you don't trust it and you keep fighting it, are you going to float? No. Are you ever going to learn to swim? No. You'll always live in terror of water. You've got to surrender. You've got to surrender. you got to say, okay, I don't understand how this water can hold me up, but it does. I see holding up all these other people. So it'll hold me up too. I don't see, I don't understand how, how I, I, just, I just surrender and, and, and open myself up and yield myself to God, and He lifts me up. But I see Him doing it to all these other people. So I guess He can do it to me too. Beloved, all we have to do is open the channel of our will and let God's power work through us. All we have to do is from our heart say, Okay. Okay. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Here we go. Here we go. Not get all bound up by fear. Not inhibited. Not thinking I had to do it my own strength. Not figure. Just say, okay, Lord, here we go. I'm yielded. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Not my will, but yours be done. It's that simple. Beloved, we can, we can work out our salvation because, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, God is at work in us both to will and act according to his good purpose. God's at work. I just need to cooperate. I just need to cooperate. He's enabling me to want to do it and he's enabling me to do it. I just have to cooperate. Okay, Lord, let's go. Let's do it. You say, it can't be that simple. It's that simple. It's that simple. Jesus does all the work. He does all the work. Look at 
equip you with every good work, doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise because he does all the work. Isn't that great? To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says, brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. Bear with it. What does that mean? It means receive it with an open mind and open heart. Receive it. Let my exhortation do its work in you. So he would say the same thing to us. This whole letter is a, is a letter of exhortation to keep on with Jesus. That Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. It's better than the old way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, bear with my exhortation. I've written you only a short letter. I want you to know that Brother Timothy has been released. He's in prison. If he arrives soon, I'll come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen. Father, thank you for your rich word. Thank you for this book, this letter to this Hebrew congregation. Lord, thank you for the three-year study that we have been so pleased and blessed to work through. And Lord, now as we anticipate taking communion, we just ask you to cause us once again to reflect on Jesus. You know, before we take communion, keep your heads bowed for just a second. I, I just feel like there's there's somebody here tonight who, you know, you, you come tonight and you don't really have any hope in your life. And maybe you've been professing to be a Christian. Maybe not. But I want to just tell you that God really does love you. His word says that he's not willing that any should perish. We are born headed for destruction. God is not sending people to hell. He's trying to save them from it. And we typically will, will attempt in our own efforts, if in fact we believe in some sort of a God to earn his approval. Most people culturally will, would agree to there's a God and there's a heaven, there's a hell, and though they may not know very much. But very typically, they will say, you know, uh, I'm a good person or I'm a religious person. That's not enough. The Bible says that all men are sinners and all men fall short. No one can attain to God's standard. That's perfection. That's why we need somebody to do it for us. As you heard me say tonight, that, that we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. You can't give up the things that God's going to call you to give up. Your drugs, your, your alcohol, your sex, your pornography, your food, your, your whatever habits they are. Typically, people say, you know, well, if I become a Christian, what do I have to give up? You have to give up everything. Everything. He demands everything. But he gives you life. And he fills you in a way that you've never been filled. And he puts you on a brand new path, the whole new value system. He has a plan. And I know there's some people here tonight. I don't know where you're sitting, but I just the Lord has just told me that you're you're sitting here tonight. Maybe you're off been off doing your own thing. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus. Maybe you made a profession of faith in Jesus, but it hasn't made any difference in your life. You're not any different. God's calling you tonight. Before we come to the communion table, I just want to give you an opportunity to make a testimony, to make a statement. Maybe to take a first step forward and say, I want God in my life. I want my sins forgiven. I want a clean slate. I want a fresh start. I want a second chance. I want some hope in my life.
I want to know that if I died tonight, I would go to heaven. You can have that assurance. And I'm just going to, I'm going to pray a prayer in a minute. Just a very simple prayer of dedication. And if you want to pray that prayer, if you want to make a commitment, if you want to say, God, save me, and you're ready to put your faith in Jesus, the fact that he died for you, then you want to pray with me. And you just signal me. And the way you can signal me is just, just raise your hand. Anybody want to pray to receive Jesus tonight? Just raise your hand real high. Okay, I see your hand down here in front. Raise, are you raising your hand down there on the aisle, ma'am? Okay. Over here, I see that hand over there. Okay. Anybody else? Back there? God bless you. Back over here? I see your hand too. Anybody else? I see your hand. God bless you. I feel like there's there's still, I don't know how many, one or two or three, maybe more people whose hearts right now are you're just you're digging your heels in digging your heels in I see your hand over on the side okay God bless you and if, if I'm talking to you if you're digging your heels in God's speaking to you God's saying come on don't hold back anybody else okay I see your hand over there I see two hands okay God bless you both All right, and if you raise your hand, then I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to take a stand right now for Jesus. I'm going to ask you to literally stand up. If you raise your hand, I want you to stand up right now. Okay, you raise your hand. You said, I want to receive Jesus. Okay, now we're going to, we're going to get serious. We're going to stand, okay? Don't be intimidated. Just, just stand up. Uh, a whole lot more hands went up than people are standing. Come on now. You held your hand up. Let's stand. I presume you meant it. Had a girl. All right. God bless you. Anybody else? Some more people over here? All right. I'm going to pray this prayer, but you make it your prayer. You just follow along. Hitchhike with me. Heavenly Father, I just stand before you right now, and I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that, that I have not really trusted you with my life. And so, God, I confess these things, and I... I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I ask you to wash me clean and give me a second chance. Give me a clean slate, a new life. I don't understand all the theology. I don't understand all that's going on. But all I know is I need you, and I know that you have you've talked to my heart tonight. I believe in Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You paid the full price for all my sins. You hung on that cross in my place. You took all the blame for me. You died. And you were buried, and after three days, you rose to life gloriously to bring me now new life. So by faith, I received the gift of life, brand new life, and forgiveness of sins. Your word says that if any man be in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So, Lord, we rejoice now with these precious new saints. And we ask you to fill them with your spirit. Strengthen them, Lord, that they may walk with you every day of their life. And help us to gather around our new brothers and sisters and to love them and encourage them and lead them in the things that we too have learned. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Now, we're going to take communion, and certainly for all of those of you who have who have just received Jesus, made a profession of faith. We want to encourage you now. Communion is a very special time for us, and we invite you now to partake. And the protocol is real simple. The, the trays will come down the rows, 
and the little pieces of matzah will come first and the juice will come second. Take one of each. Hold on to them. And for all of us, this is the time Jesus says, remember me. Remember what he's done for us. Remember that he's brought, died to bring us life. And not only that, but he, he also strengthens our lives. And so you just remember him. And after everybody has served, you hold on to the elements. After everybody's served, I'll come back and we'll all take communion together. Jesus is the bread of life. On that last Passover, the night before he died, when he really instituted this communion meal, the whole point of it was that we remember him. He's the one that makes it possible for us to have life. He's the one that makes it possible for us to be, if I can say this, the happiest people on earth. I mean, think about it. We have life. We have forgiveness. We have a a very sure hope. We are people who, as as you mature as a Christian, you begin to see... You don't, even, you don't fear death anymore. You almost can hardly wait till it comes so you can get on the other side and be with him. See, the more you're separated from this world, the more you long to be with him. And the, the, the more joy uh, exudes from your life. Because you really are walking in his spirit. He made all that possible. And we remember him. We celebrate what he's done for us. He said, I came that you should have life and have it to the full. He didn't say, I came that you should be a bummer. No, you should have life and have it to the full. Rich beyond measure of love and joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness self-control Jesus we love you tonight we are thankful for your incredible grace to us Lord we don't know why you've chosen us we don't know why you've set your heart on us but you have, and we're thankful. Lord, we're thankful for your word that we can go to at any time, any day, and find answers, direction, wisdom, understanding, comfort, and strength. Lord, we love you tonight. And Father, as we have concluded our study of the book of Hebrews, which points to your beloved Son, we are so rich. Thank you for the testimony of that book. Jesus, you are Lord. And we eat this bread. We're reminding ourselves that we have taken you into us that you are the source of life and strength. You nourish us, Lord. If you believe in Jesus, he says, this is my body, take and eat. Lord, by faith, we make this testimony. And the cup reminds us of your blood 
your very life that was poured out so that our sins could be forgiven. The blood of the eternal covenant, eternal effect. Because of that blood, God remembers our sins no more. They are cast into the deepest part of the sea. They are as far away as the east is from the west. Thank you, Lord. And you have made us white as snow. Lord, we lift our cups to Jesus. God is good. Amen. Amen. Shall we uh, pass the cups to the aisles? The ushers will collect them. And let's stand and let's give him just a praise offering like never before. Amen? Amen. Covenant by the power. 